Carlton Owen, immediate past president and CEO of the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities, and a proud supporter of Keeping Forest. Keeping Forest is the producer of this podcast called How the River Flows. Keeping Forest is built on a powerful and simple idea to ensure that our region's forests have a future. We're working hard to conserve the 245 million acres of existing forests by supporting private landowners, shedding light on why this land matters, and showing what you can do to help. Every episode of How the River Flows will take a close look at the relationship between healthy forests and clean drinking water. Our experts will share their best ideas along with specific examples about conserving local forests to ensure a lasting, clean supply of drinking water to meet local needs. Each time, we'll bring you a new take on how landowners can be compensated for the tremendous environmental value that their working forests provide to everyone. You'll learn how these innovations are financed, managed, and even how your local community can join the effort in protecting our precious southern forests and the many benefits, including clean water, that they provide. So sit back and enjoy this episode of How the River Flows. Thanks, Carlton. Hi, I'm Sam Cook, Executive Director of Forest Assets for North Carolina State University in the College of Natural Resources. I also serve as the Vice President of the Natural Resources Foundation. In this episode of How the River Flows, we will be covering how wood works for you, specifically building sustainable wood mass timber. My guests today are Dr. Pat Layton, Bruce Lindsay, and Scott Davis. Dr. Pat Layton is director of the Wood Utilization Plus Design Institute and a professor of forestry at Clemson University in Clemson, South Carolina. She has worked on mass timber for almost a decade. Next, Bruce Lindsay is the regional director for Southeast Woodworks, U.S. Wood Products Council. He works directly with developers and design teams, providing education and free technical support related to the design, engineering, and construction of commercial and multifamily wood buildings. Next but not least, Scott Davis of Keeping Forest oversees all aspects of the initiative's work. He has a long career in conservation, having spent most of his time at the Nature Conservancy and has worked with both South America and Asia. Pat, Bruce, and Scott, welcome to the podcast. So Pat, let me start with you. I know you were the driving force behind the establishment of the Clemson Wood Utilization Plus Design Institute in 2013 as an innovation hub for South Carolina's 21 billion forest products industry. Can you tell us a little bit about the Clemson Wood Utilization Plus Design Institute? Sure, I'd love to. Right about 2011, Clemson was redoing some curriculums and one of the ones that wasn't mentioned in a press release was forestry. And so our forest products industry called our administration to Clemson and asked, hey, what are you doing with forestry? Are you going to have forestry? And the administration looked at the forest products industry and said, sure, but what do you want us to do? And they said, we need more markets. We need to be selling wood. And so we came back and at Clemson, we settled into a decision of looking at organizing architecture, construction science, civil engineering, and other departments as needed in with forestry to develop an institute that would look at expanding the use of wood building materials, especially in the non-residential arena, and I mean single-family housing. How could we use more wood in our buildings of, you know, four or more stories or even one or single stories? But how could we get into that marketplace when it seemed to be dominated by concrete masonry units, 
are. And so that became our goal of one, understanding that our architecture students had to learn to use wood because they weren't being necessarily taught that, that our engineering students needed to learn how to engineer with wood, and that we needed to get out and work with architects that are practicing and engineers that are practicing and help them and to understand the building codes and where we could move within the building codes. And that became the model for what we wanted to do was to help people feel reassured that they could use wood in a building, but also to have our students educated and trained to do that. And then in our research, we tackle some substantive issues like developing southern yellow pine as a cross-laminated timber product and doing some of the first testing on that to prove that it could be done, which led to three or more businesses here in the South that are making cross-laminated timber out of southern yellow pine. Yes. And, you know, I've been in this business 41 years, and I've known you for quite a while. Heard the announcement when that all happened, and you were picked to go into that field to take care of this project. And I said, I wonder, will this work? Now I want to hear from Bruce, (laughs) who's going to tell us. I know you work directly with developers and design teams to provide support related to the design, engineering, and construction of commercial and multifamily wood buildings. Can you tell us more about your work and what Woodworks is all about? Sure, I'd be happy to. So much to what Pat talked about, there was this realization within the wood products industry that there was this missing element that we really weren't reaching the multifamily and commercial construction fields simply because most everything had been focused from a manufacturing and education standpoint towards single family. So a little over a decade ago, it was suggested that, hey, let's get the education going from an industry standpoint. And so Woodworks was introduced based on a Canadian model. It's an educational initiative under the umbrella of the Wood Products Council. And it has the sole purpose of growing the use of wood products within the commercial and multifamily construction fields. And we do this by providing free project support. We've got a robust nationwide educational program and a wide range of published resources. Far too many to mention here today in the time we have. So I would encourage the listeners, if they're interested, simply go to our website, www.woodworks.org, and you'll find all of these resources and the ability to contact any of our staff which including myself is over two dozen highly trained professionals ranging from architects, engineers, construction backgrounds, all in an effort to provide that one-stop resource for education and assistance within the design community. And all of this is provided with little or no cost, funded in partnership with the Softwood Lumber Board, the USDA Forest Service Forestry Innovation Investment, along with a host of industry partnerships who make it possible for Woodworks to continue to grow the acceptance and use of wood products in the commercial and multifamily sectors. So it's a great program and one we expect to continue to grow simply because of the demand we're seeing within the industry and a lot of that related to what we're talking about today, mass timber. Yeah. So think about it as people listen to this podcast, the one big question on their mind, are mass timber buildings safe and do the building codes allow them? Sure. And I'll be glad to answer that. So uh, they are very safe. Actually, as mass timber buildings have evolved, that's always been one of the questions. And a lot of that's based on misconception. You know, ultimately, you ask the general public, you know, do you want to go into a tall wood building? And the first impression is, well, that that's combustible. That scares me. And the reality is we have over a century or more, based on historical buildings, that we know that large pieces of wood simply 
tend to char. And if you look at the actual physics of a fire in a structure, it's actually the fuel source is the actual load. So it's not the building itself, it's the fuel load inside. So it's the furniture, the carpet, things of that nature. The way we look at fire safety in modern construction is we try to compartmentalize the fire. And we do that through rated, what we call rated assembly. So the wall or the ceiling is designed and constructed so that it can compartmentalize that fire for one hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it may be. And so with that in mind, the new building codes that will embrace tall mass timber will utilize all of this in the construction. So these will be quite literally some of the safest buildings in the world as we move forward into the new building codes that will allow us to go up to these 18 stories in height. Now, as far as the question, does building code allow it? It's evolving very quickly. So thanks in great part to the American Wood Council and others throughout the industry, they have pushed forward the building codes nationally so that by 2024, most all states will have adopted in some form the ability to go up to 18 stories with mass timber. States will adopt what we call the International Building Code, which is a national code, on a three-year cycle. So although this code has already been released and available in 2021, it will take probably three years or more for most states to adopt it as they go through their local transitions. But we do expect that. And again, we're talking about the Southeast region here today. We expect all the states in that region to embrace that within the next three years. In fact, in South Carolina, we've just started that process. And so we'll be meeting as a code council and as a group over this year, and hopefully it will be signed into or approved by the state legislature and available in 2022 for us to use here in our state. Which is really good because that's where I was about to go, Pat, just to narrow down where does South Carolina fit into all of this. But I have a question for both of you. And I'll start with you, Pat. What is the appeal of mass timber for the construction industry? There's several really big appeals. First is, it is very easy to use in a lot of ways. It is a technology that is prefabricated off-site. So you come to the building site with basically a kit of parts. So things fit together. Holes are pre-drilled. Connections are easy to put together. And you can actually unload the pieces of the project off the trucks in a way that you can quickly put buildings together. And that makes it very fast. It's also tends to use less labor. And that is also a cost reduction. And it's quick. So I was amazed at how fast our first building here at Clemson went up. It was really incredible how fast the building went up. The other idea is that it wood has a high strength to weight ratio, so it's very lightweight. So if you're on poor quality soils, it's much easier to build a wood building because you don't have to drill so deep into the ground to put all of your substructure in place. So it really makes a lot of sense in some key areas. And finally, I think one of the most important aspects is is that people feel good when they're in the wood building. They really enjoy being in there. It is different. I sent my students out this week to uh, see our building, and they all came back and said, it wasn't what I expected. I really like that building. I wish other buildings were like that on our campus. So it is the construction process. It is living or working in the building and the sense of feel that you get from it. It has a lot of cost savings and time reduction savings if you know what you're doing. The final point I'd say is that it really integrates 
all of the construction process into the design process if you do it right. And it really impacts how we design and construct buildings and integrating our subcontractors and everyone along that supply chain to where we can actually improve the way we are constructing buildings with less changes, less cost, and really making a difference. Sounds pretty good because I think now that allows me to feel about the Lego industry, how much that's improved and increased the popularity of it. So Bruce, can you expand on it a little bit? Yeah, and and I think that's a great way to put it. It's a giant Lego set in some regards. So from a construction industry standpoint, as Pat mentioned, there's a savings in overall schedule. And we know that with experienced contractors, there was a 20% measured savings in the overall schedule. And if you think about, you know, a lot of these projects, we're talking $50 million, $100 million, just the construction loan by itself. If you can knock off 20% of the time frame of that, that's a huge amount of money. And there's other challenges within the construction industry as well. One of those is skilled labor. The workforce continues to decline while the demand continues to go up. So what we've done traditionally with what we'd simply call framers and framing crews, those have been diminishing. And in great part because we've seen these spikes in our construction path, you know, things slow down, things speed up. And and so that's been a challenge for our general contractors. So the nice thing about mass timber being a a, a large Lego set, for lack of a better term, is that uh, we don't need all that skilled labor out there. We can reduce that workforce. And and again, some of the measures and that reduction in workforce is 40% or better from a skilled team. And that's a huge motivator for the general contractors. Now, there's other factors. It's not just savings out there in the field, a lot of it is client-driven. A lot of the owners of these buildings have this desire to build more sustainably and have a product on the market that offers an advantage over their competition. And as Pat says, when you walk into one of these buildings, and again, it goes back kind of that that public misconception when you say timber building, I, I think honestly, a lot of people just picture a log building and they go into it. And what you what you walk into in one of these buildings is just this stunning beauty of wood but in a modern application in a modern building. And clients of these general contractors are pushing for these types of buildings because they need a different product to lease or to sell. There's motivation from their clients to learn about the new processes. And then we also have a workforce demand. So if you look at some of the, what we'll call the millennial-driven workforce, and millennials represent roughly half of our workforce right now, they are probably some of the most educated when it comes to sustainability, energy efficiency, and things of that nature. And they are demanding a more sustainable workplace. And we've seen this uh, with some of the what we would call our leading technology companies. So Google, Sidewalk Labs, Microsoft, even Walmart all have campuses that they're planning to use mass timber in. So this is one of these motivators that we feel like will drive the industry and the general contractors in turn to pursue more with mass timber and, and to learn how to do that more efficiently. There's one other leading factor, and that's the American Institute of Architects, which is by far the largest association from the architecture field, has a program called the 2030 Challenge. And their goal is within the next decade that all buildings, new buildings, would be net zero. And when we talk about that, uh, and, and we'll get more into that conversation today, I'm sure, net zero wood plays an important, huge role just from the manufacturing energy to make wood products. And we compare that to comparable materials, let's say steel and concrete. If you're looking at cement, it takes five times more energy to create that. It takes 24 times more energy to create equivalent steel. And just, I'm just saying if we measured it ton per ton. And so just that embodied energy 
becomes more important because as we start looking at these buildings being more energy efficient, and that's part of that goal of that 2030 challenge by the American Institute of Architects, the embodied energy becomes a bigger portion of that calculation. And mass timber has a huge, huge potential there to outweigh, no pun intended, underway, however you want to look at it. As Pat said, it weighs 75% less. It's just so much more efficient, sustainable, and that's proven and documented in so many ways that there, there's, there's little or no argument there. Well stated, Bruce. And Pat, Bruce mentioned a few words like millennials, environmental, and sustainability. You are a professor of forestry, and this is very near and dear to my heart. Tell us about the environmental benefits of mass timber and managing our forest sustainably, because you know everyone out there is really listening to understand why do we need to grow so much timber and do away with other things. Ooh, well, good question. You know, when I look at it, I am very comfortable with growing a lot of timber, but here in my state, we don't have markets for all the timber we're growing, and our landowners really would love to see market opportunities for them to manage their timber responsibly, have an opportunity to thin, grow into a second thinning, and maybe a final harvest before they redo their forest. But really finding that opportunity, especially in all parts of our state and in all parts of the South, it's not equal right now. And once we do have a market, we do see that management and sustainability of the forest around a market concentration actually increases. And there's been studies here in the South and in other locations to show that when you have an active forest market, the quality of forest, the management of the forest, and sustainability of the forest is much better. So one of the things we'd love to see happen is, is that as we use more wood, we can increase that sustainability and management, which includes ecosystem services like more and better water quality, clean air, habitats, streamside management zones, you name it, recreation, all of the benefits that we get from a forest. So we're really anxious to see that. And mass timber is a new market separate from what we've seen in the past for traditional saw timber markets. So saw timber in the past has gone mostly to light frame or to some types of engineered wood and mostly in the residential arena. So now to open up a brand new market allows us to have room to grow and gives us much more money, more markets for the wood we're growing. Our one sticking point we're a little behind on sawmills if we're going to grow this correctly. So at the moment, everybody's after us about, well, what about the price of wood? Well, the price of wood is a demand issue. We have a lot of demand and our sawmills are operating quite well right now, very efficiently and at full capacity. So we are seeing new sawmills coming online that will ease that burden. So as the mass timber industry continues to climb, so, for example, to date, I think we're about 700 buildings that we're keeping track of, at least Bruce's organization is keeping track of, that's already been built or in the process of being built. But we see there's more and more coming online. And as those come online, we're going to need that sawmill production and the mass timber production to come in and increase for us so that we can do that. And we, we look forward to seeing that increase healthy forests across the South because we'll have 
more sawmills, more management, more markets, and a better quality forest. Yeah, and one thing that, for the benefit of our entire audience that's possibly going to be listening to this, does mass timber require a big tree, a small tree, or does it replace what would typically go into a pulp mill? Or you mentioned something about a sawmill. How can you relay that to the individual that don't know anything about growing trees or cutting lumber? Sure. So in general, we have a variety of types of what we call mass timber. So the first is an old type that we've known about for a long time, glue lamb. So glued laminated beams. And in general, we see those in two by four, two by sixes, two by eights, possibly even two by 10 sizes. They're produced in a sawmill. They have high qualities for strength and they are sent to a manufacturer to be manufactured into glued laminated timber. The next issue is cross-laminated timber. So instead of having a two-by-six stacked on top of another two-by-six stacked on top of another two-by-six, which is what we do with glue laminated, in the case of cross-laminated timber, we do one layer and then we come back 90-degree angles and lay another layer across. And again, we're looking at, in general in the South, two-by-sixes, two-by-eights, are going into that. So those are products that are produced from a sawmill. And those are grade two or better if you think about inspection of lumber. So if you go to the lumber yard or to the local Lowe's or Home Depot, you can pick out a a number two that has some knots or you can pick out a prime that looks pretty. But that's the grade that we're working on it. So the tree has to be big enough to do that. So if you've got a chip and saw, operation, so it's a smaller mill, yes, it can produce some portion of that wood that would go into a cross-laminated timber or a glue lamb. And then there are other types of mass timber that we can use, nail-laminated timber, dowel-laminated timber. Also, we use the similar types of wood as we go into those. There are new types coming on board and can be used as LVL or laminated veneer lumber, which is using veneers mass plywood panel, which also uses laminated veneers. It's basically taking plywood and putting it together crossed such that you can make large panels. So when we talk about a panel, we're talking about something that's somewhere between 40 to 60 feet long and seven and a half to 10 foot wide. And each company makes a little bit of a different size panel. But when we put those together and we lay them across glue lamb beams, we get what looks like an old heavy timber building that we might have seen in a mill or a factory from a long time ago. And that's what we're emulating. We're using that same technology, that same kind of engineering structure in our mind to think about large pieces of wood that can be put together. Thank you for that. So Bruce, I've been told that there's a lot of research and surveys that building the business case for healthy buildings. Can you expand on that and tell us a little bit about why? There's actually a great deal of research. So as Pat, uh, and I think Pat mentioned the term biophilia, which is basically the human desire to be part of nature. And what we know from history alone, from Asian society, Europe, the Canadians have great examples, is that when you implement this feel of nature within our living environment, and, and in this case, we're talking about, you know, the interior of a building, that it promotes a healthy and learning environment. 
And we've seen that promoted. And, and, and those same societies that we talked about have been doing that for decades, if not centuries. And there's great research to back that up that shows that. So when we talk about a healthy building, that's one element of that. It kind of takes us back to looking at the sustainability of the building, the overall health of our planet. I think that's more of a motivating force in many ways as we look at the sustainability of this compared to other products. As Pat mentioned, we have a wealth of timber uh, in North America. And in many instances, we have too much, depending. If you're a landowner, you might argue that. (laughs) All of us in this industry love to see forest land. We all love to be out in it. But the reality is that it's for us in this industry, it's a crop. And we need that demand. And I think that sustainability plays into that because, like I mentioned before, it's very difficult to argue that wood is not the best product for this. And so, as Pat mentioned, what we're talking about are generally softwood species that we use for construction now. And that's generally been the difference. What we used to historically call heavy timber, and you you can go over any part of the U.S. and find an old manufacturing facility and many of these are saved, and that kind of points to the durability of, of large timber construction, that you'll find that it was large pieces. Might have been a, a large dug fir element that was, you know, two feet deep and just massive, massive pieces. And what we're now calling mass timber tends to be an engineered product coming from smaller elements within the trees, which are very agreeable with how we conduct our forestry now and works well with the softwood lumber species. So we're taking smaller pieces using adhesives, and we're putting those together in a very predictable way that makes it easy for the engineers to make these buildings stronger than what we've ever been able to do before. And there's things that we can do with mass timber. As Pat said, it weighs 70% less than concrete. So there are some unique projects. And again, I would, I would encourage you to go to our website and you'll see some of those. There's things that we can do with mass timber that you really can't do with steel or concrete because of weight limitations or just simple cost, to be honest with you. So there's a lot of new things out there. And I I think the healthy building terminology is more than just one thing. There's so many more things out there. And and, and it usually comes back, particularly in our society now, looking at Mother Earth, or is it a healthy thing for all of us, not just that one building? And that's going to be a bigger impact as we look forward, particularly with the new administration and some of their viewpoints. We're seeing some inertia and some momentum moving forward to that. And I think that's great for our industry. Yeah, I know over my career and just I've been hearing quite a bit about this, especially Bruce, where this was going on in the West Coast and overseas. We've heard a lot lately about mass timber building projects. So tell me, where does the United States industry stand on this? And are we building with mass timber on a large scale? I think we're on a very positive path to building on a very large scale, but I think we have to be you know, for lack of a better way to put it, we're still in our infancy with this. And I think, you know, the first hurdle was really getting those codes to the point, or our building codes, where they would accept the idea of using more mass timber. Now, if we looked, and, and this has been done, a survey of commercial buildings in the U.S., almost nine out of 10 buildings could be built with wood. There's a lot of reasons we haven't done that in the past. And a lot of that, you can go back as far as to World War II. After the war, we had a wealth of steel manufacturers. It was cheap. Uh, there was a good infrastructure for it. We built a lot of bridges and new buildings. And it was kind of the, the latest and greatest way to go. And as Pat had mentioned, within our university systems, our architects and engineers, that was the fad then. You design with steel. And we kind of lost touch of that. And thanks to Pat and other university efforts, NC State included, we're seeing more towards the design and engineering utilizing wood for that. There's a growing evolution there. But 
Historically in the U.S., we've been limited to about six stories by the building code to utilize wood construction. So again, thanks to extended efforts by the American Wood Council and others, that will change, as I mentioned. And that was really the first turtle. We get the states to accept it. That's all part of that. And so really the next big hurdle we're facing is the design industry, the architects, the engineers, even the general contractors, is getting them to accept this new theology of how to build. It's a new product. The way the building goes together is different. As we mentioned, these will be some of the safest buildings ever built, but that's a new way of, of design. And so my group is obviously grabbing this by the horns, and we have been, honestly, for a decade trying to go ahead and get this theology out to the design community and the construction community to show them how to design with these buildings. So that's kind of the, I'll say, the bottleneck at the moment. But we've noticed that as the general contractors become more complex in their role, there's a bottleneck there. And, you know, there's often that joke within the construction industry, you know, my daddy built it that way, I'll build it that way. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so quite often that portion of our industry gets a bad rap for, you know, we don't ever change. And the reality is they change constantly. There's new tools, there's new equipment, there's new methods. And so we're finding that, as Pat mentioned in some of her comments, there's huge efficiencies to be gained from the construction side, but it takes experience. To realize that 40% savings in manpower, you've got to have the ability to do it with less men in that experience. And, and I kind of relate it to, you know, if you go buy that uh, cabinet from Ikea, and I've got a great example uh, behind me. There's, there's four bookcases, and they were all the exact same. The first one was horribly painful for me to put together. It took me forever. The next three I did in 30 minutes combined. And so Mass Timber is a lot like that. If it's your first time, there's a growing pain that goes with that. But once you get there, and we've heard the same thing from all the general contractors that have worked on a building, and it's all pretty much the same exact quote. Why have we not been doing this for years? This is so simple, so effective. And once they simply learn that it's just overcoming that fear of the unknown and simply doing it one time, there's huge gains to be made there. So I would say, you know, you combine all of this and some of the other points we talked about, the motivation from the industry, from sustainability and other things. You know, we're, we're in our infancy, but we've gone through the crawl, we're, we've started walking, but I think we're going to be running really quick when all of this comes together. So I say, yeah, there's a huge positive potential coming up and, and probably quicker than, honestly, we may be ready for within the industry, but I think it'll be a very welcome uneasiness if we do get it. Yeah, I can't wait. So Pat, the last two kind of centered on you, your call, I mentioned that you are a professor of forestry in the forestry space. So that must mean you're a forester. I am. Great. And as a forester, can you tell us how forest landowners and our forest benefits from using wood as a construction material? Sure. So it is the opportunity to have a high value product at the end of our rotations or in our rotations of timber that allows us to really make money so that we can pay for that next generation of timber. I was really amazed when I learned that thinning is really good. That's the most profitable one you're going to get, it seems like, because you didn't have to reinvest. But as we go along, really having a very good high-value product to come off our land really allows us to keep reinvesting in our land. So I think those are the biggest things. But I think one of the things that forest landowners can do right now to help themselves is to encourage every building they know to be made from wood. So we had a local forester and he called me one day and he said, hey, we're building an economic development building in our local community. 
to manage all the economic development in this three-county area. How can I get that in wood? And I said, well, did you ask for it? And he was like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're hiring the architect. It's okay to go tell him what you want. Just like when someone hires you to be their forester, it's okay for them to tell you what they want. That's the whole point about being a forester as a consultant. And he's like, oh, yeah. And I said, so all you have to do is go tell him you want it of wood. And if he doesn't know how to do it, he'll figure it out because he wants your business. So one of the important things that I think all of us, because forest landowners are spread across the South in all kinds of arenas, if someone's building a building, ask if they're building it with wood because that's the way that we're going to make changes. And I think that's important. Bruce and a bunch of us are working on architects, but really it's the owner that has to come to the table and say to the architect, I want wood and I'd like to do it with this mass timber. It's really interesting. Once it gets going and once architects like it and learn it, they start suggesting it. So here, even in little old Clemson, as we call it, one of my friends who's an architect is about to put in a pavilion in a city park that's made of mass timber. It's made of cross-laminated timber from southern yellow pine. So obviously, the city is not going to spend extra money to put in a pavilion. It's going to be coming in at a very efficient and effective cost or they wouldn't build it because, you know, our city governments are, they're not going to spend extra money. So it can be done. It can be done very cheaply. We built our building and because we left a lot of wood exposed, we weren't adding a lot of sheetrock in finishings in the buildings. You can see where all the sprinkler heads are for the fire system. Our building actually came in below cost, below the cost of an equivalent concrete or steel building. So it really is starting to think that way and look that way and making sure that people consider wood as an option. And there is a tendency to like, ooh, well, you have to be out there and be an advocate. You grow this product, you ought to be asking people to use this product. So uh, that's, I think, one of the things. But I think forest landowners should look at this and realize that if we can do this, we're looking at adding over the next 10 years about 10% more wood that we're going to need to fill this mass timber market. So if what we're producing in North America, we may need in 10 years, 10% more. But I know that with good forest management, and I know the kind of forest management a lot of our private landowners like to do, you know, bringing in the genetics, bringing in the site prep, doing the right silviculture, managing our timber, it's a snap for us to increase the amount of wood we produce by 10% because we're already over about 5% per year compared to what we're actually using. So I, I think it's exciting and very wonderful for us to be able to see that as a benefit that there's out there that we can produce more and make more off growing timber in our part of the world. Yeah, I like that. So it sounds like trying to get a big push from the ground up mm-hmm. to ensure that the landowners who are growing these products can be asking the end user to use my product. Mm-hmm. And that leads into our, sort of our last topic because we're doing this for Keeping Forest. So at Keeping Forest, we talk a lot about ecosystem services. You mentioned that earlier throughout the presentation or your the discussion. This clearly includes using wood for construction, but we must not forget the host of other services that the forest provides including those related to water, 
Trees are critical to the water cycle, help manage runoff and minimize flooding. How do landowners you represent in South Carolina protect these ecosystem services? Well, I think the important part is to start understanding those very important ecosystem services. And I know we're doing some work at Clemson about how do we value, how much water are we producing? How much carbon are we storing? What are those benefits that we're looking at that are being produced by our forest in South Carolina? And then helping our landowners to understand how to monetize those. In fact, I'm doing a seminar that I'm going to learn from about carbon markets because it's not a thing I know very much about from a landowner perspective. But really understanding, is there a way that I can get paid for having my trees take carbon up from the atmosphere and produce wood? And if that does it, that's great. That's an ecosystem service, and there may be a way that a landowner can get paid for it. So I think really for landowners to start saying, oh, it's not just leasing my land to hunters or raking pine straw. I can grow my trees and have them make money for me too. And I think when we start learning more about measuring the amount or the quality and quantity of water that's coming off a forest and into a public water system, we may find that there are opportunities for those. So we saw in California, I think recently, a local water company actually invested in a forest restoration project because they said and recognized that that forest was going to do more to give them cleaner, more water than they could do in the equipment portion of their waterworks. So that's a recognition and hopefully we'll see some of those things turn too. So I think it's, it is helping our landowners understand the values, what they mean and what they represent. And if we can monetize those, it'll make landowning even more profitable. So Pat, how do you see this working for landowners that's currently not growing trees? They may be doing ag, they may have bare land. Or they may just not know what they can do when it comes down to sustainable forestry management as it relates to mass timber. Well, I know that we have an overabundance right now of timber, but if we're successful with mass timber, and if we're successful in really thinking about a lot of opportunities that I think we're going to see coming out of the Biden administration, we're going to see the need and the opportunity for cost share for landowners to put more land into forestry or into growing trees. So if you're a landowner and you're not using your land right now, we may need those trees in 20 years for mass timber production. So if there's an opportunity in your region to grow more trees, to plant trees, to manage forests better, it's an opportune time for you to stop and think about it and investigate any of the programs that might be out there to increase the amount of trees that are being grown. And I especially want to just recognize that urban trees are an important part of what needs to be done. So there are some opportunities even for our urban dwellers to plant a new tree in your urban situation and help forest in your urban areas. But especially if you have a few acres of unoccupied land, you may have the opportunity to participate in a carbon market. And I believe there's going to be more opportunities over the near future. So begin to think about it and get involved and call your local extension agent and find out what there might be about how to grow trees or how to get involved in forestry in your local area. 
This has been very enlightening, Pat and Bruce. I'd like to thank you both for this very important topic. And hopefully our landowners and others will get something from it. Thank you, Sam. Thanks. Now that we've heard from Pat and Bruce, I'd like to move us along and introduce you to Scott Davis. This is the last episode of the podcast season. If this is the first episode that our listeners have heard, can you tell them why they should listen to the other episodes? Thanks, Sam. I'd be happy to. And I am i guess I have to say I'm sorry to see this end. This has been a really interesting experience for me. I've learned a lot myself, even though I've been a part of this process from the beginning. But we wanted to share some of what we think are really incredible stories of people in the Southeast working on natural capital projects, ecosystem service projects. Basically, folks, landowners and other investors that see nature is is a form of infrastructure and are willing to invest in it, that understand that if we can find ways of investing in nature that can turn us all into conservationists, we might have actually have a decent chance of, of protecting some of this stuff in the long run. We also hope that this series might inspire a little bit of action across the region in similar projects. I'd love to see landowners, utilities, and others get invested, get engaged in these kinds of projects, because I really do think it is the wave of the future. This is one of the primary ways I think we're going to find to protect natural resources moving forward. So if this is the first podcast you've listened to, I I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to go back and listen to them all. Early on, we talked about scale and why it's important to think about scale and, and how you get to scale and why these kinds of projects are a good way to do that. We talked a lot about how you finance these things. How do you pay for them? We brought in people from Texas that talked about taxes and bonds and how they use those to pay for the projects. Someone from Arkansas talked a little bit about tweaking the rate structure to pay for these kinds of things. And I think it's hopefully inspiring to all of us. And I think it will help all of us understand how free market economies can help landowners protect their forests, make a little bit of money from their functional forest, and how that all plays into the economics of source water protection. There's an awful lot in these podcasts. I think there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of inspirational stories, and I really do hope that folks will tune in. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Scott, for such an important summary of all the podcasts we've heard. We would like to encourage you all to listen to each one of the episodes. As Scott said, they are filled with great information from the brains behind the projects. This podcast episode was made possible by the generous support of the USDA Forest Service, Forest Products Lab, Forest Products Marketing Unit and Innovation. Music by Chuck LaVille. This is Sam Cook, Executive Director of Forest Assets at NC State's College of Natural Resources, Administrator and Staff for Keeping Forest, 
a diverse coalition conserving the natural, economic, and cultural value of Southern forests. I want to thank everyone for tuning into How the River Flows. Join us next time as we explore the connections between healthy forests and clean water and see how others have built a partnership that benefits all. You can listen to How the River Flows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Carlton Owen. This is Judy Tackett from Keeping Forest. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to keep up with everything we're working on, consider joining our mailing list to get the latest in your inbox. You can sign up at keepingforest.org.